Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Tonight on The Readout. In this case, my office will seek a speedy trial so that our evidence can be tested in court and judged by a jury of citizens. That was special counsel Jack Smith back in August, and now he's asking the U.S. Supreme Court for a speedy ruling on whether presidential immunity protects Donald Trump from prosecution. Also tonight, the U.N. describes the situation in Gaza as apocalyptic and on the brink of collapse. For all the death and destruction, how much has Hamas been degraded by Israel? I'll ask a top a top advisor to Prime Minister Netanyahu. Plus, a major new development tonight in the case of a Texas woman who sought a court order to get an abortion. And we begin tonight with the American hard right's bear hug of the European hard right. Hungary's authoritarian leader, Viktor Orban, Europe's leading defender of fascism, has long been a right-wing idol for Republicans trying to destroy democracy here at home. So it should perhaps come as no surprise that, according to The Guardian, this week, allies of Orban will hold a closed-door meeting with Republicans in Washington, including members of Congress, to push for an end to U.S. military aid to Ukraine. They probably won't have to push too hard, since stopping Ukraine would be a gift to Russian President Vladimir Putin, the Russians' other favorite strongman. And it comes amid some counter-programming of sorts, as President Biden will be hosting Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, at the White House on Tuesday. The Republicans' embrace of Putin-friendly policies by way of Viktor Orban is just the latest in a growing alliance building between America's far right wing and Europe's. Earlier this year, Orban hosted some of America's most high-profile MAGA foot soldiers at CPAC Hungary, including failed Arizona Senate candidate and Trump superfan Carrie Lake and longtime white nationalist sympathizer, Arizona Congressman Paul Gosar. And Orban's remarks at CPAC Hungary make clear why his American hard-right admirers see Hungary's fascist dictatorship as a model for the U.S., He denounced LGBTQ rights and what he called woke culture and told his audience of international right wingers, quote, no migration, no gender, no war. Adding, Hungary is actually an incubator where experiments are done on the future of conservative policies. Hungary is the place where we didn't just talk about defeating the progressives and liberals and causing a conservative Christian political turn, but we actually did it. It's no wonder then that America's own fascist right agrees and has been on a years-long campaign to make it happen. In 2021, one of Orban's biggest U.S. cheerleaders, Tucker Carlson, took his Fox show to Budapest for a week. A small country with a lot of lessons for the rest of us. And one last thing. Because the example of Hungary is so powerful, not just in Europe, but to the world, to the entire world, not simply the West. What you can do with a relatively small economy and not many people, if you're just serious about keeping your nation from being destroyed. Another Orban devotee on this side of the Atlantic is Gavin Wax, president of the New York Young Republican Club. In 2022, he told CPAC Hungary, America first conservatives demand nothing short of an American Orbanism. 
Later that year at the organization's annual gala, Wax declared total war on the group's perceived enemies in front of a who's who of white nationalists and trolls, including anti-immigration zealot Peter Brimelow, founder of the white supremacist website VDARE, and former Trump advisor and lord of the alt-right at Breitbart, Steve Bannon. Now, it's important to note that the New York Young Republican Club is nothing short of a Donald Trump superfan society. And during that same 2022 gala, Marjorie Taylor Greene told the crowd, quote, if Steve Bannon and I organized that, meaning January 6th, we would have won, not to mention it would have been armed. The New York Times also noted another key guest at last year's event, Hungary's ambassador to the U.S., who said he, def- he attended at Orban's behest. Meanwhile, at this year's gala, the guest of honor and America's own wannabe Orban, Donald Trump, doubled down on this little gem. I said I want to be a dictator for one day. But the New York Times said, and you know why I wanted to be a dictator? Because I want a wall, right? I want a wall and I want to drill, drill, drill. And one more note about this crowd of Orban and Trump fans who are working hard to destroy America's multiracial democracy from within. Their followers have a shared set of goals with Europe and also South America's far right. Subordinating women and eliminating abortion, eliminating LGBTQ rights, ending all non-white immigration and getting their countries and ours as close as possible to being white ethnostates. A philosophy steeped in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and hyper online, whether they're in Manhattan or Budapest or Miami. Which was home, by the way, to the 2022 National Conservative Conference, or NATCON, which was described by religion dispatches last year as a who's who of the thought leaders, opinion shapers, policymakers, and foot soldiers of the rightward flank of the MAGA ecosystem. The report adds, while most of the extremely online movements that espouse these ideas, like the white nationalist America First, Groiper movement, or the neo-reactionary Dark Enlightenment movement, They've been politically marginal and ineffective. The people gathered at NatCon know how to get things done. The hard rights would-be kingmaker Peter Thiel has has delivered the opening keynote at all three NatCon conferences in the U.S. As for their international conferences, back in 2020, one of their guests of honor for their conference in Rome was Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban. Joining me now is Ben Collins. NBC News senior senior reporter and Stephen Levitsky, Harvard University professor of government and co-author of Tyranny of the Minority, Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point. Thank you both for being here. Um, I will start with you, um, Steve. Um, can you just talk a little bit more about how the European far right and the American far right sort of came together and how long that's been going on? It's been going on for uh, uh, about a decade or so, I, I think it's, it's important to point out or step back and, uh, and, and think about how new this is, right? It wasn't that long ago that Americans and Republicans thought of the United States as a model for the world, uh, that other countries and other political parties would follow. Now we've descended, or the Republicans have descended to a point where they are running around chasing a small country like Hungary and viewing it as a model. Rather than the United States being a model for anybody, we are copying Hungary, or Republicans are hell-bent on copying Hungary. That's pathetic. Um, and look, I think the most important thing for, for us to take into account is um, the United States, for the Republican Party for, for a long time, was a sister party to other conservative parties in the West, the German Christian Democrats, the Tories in, in Great Britain, other center-right parties. 
Now the Republican Party is openly embracing not center-right parties in Europe. Those parties are still there. We're not interested in them. We are openly embracing openly authoritarian parties like Fidesz in Hungary, uh, Putin in Russia, and uh, like some authoritarians, as you mentioned, in uh, in South America. This is a, a, a dramatic, dramatic transformation. And we need to keep this front and center as we head into the 2024 election. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, South America. It's Victor Millet, who was sworn in in Argentina, he's the guy who likes to wave the chainsaw around and said that he's going to basically take that to the society in his country. And, you know, Ben, the, 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 you know, Tucker Carlson was kind of the most open. There he is waving his chainsaw. Um, Tucker Carlson was kind of the most open sort of hungry bootlicker uh, on Fox before he got fired. Um, but he is now sort of taking that show on the road more. He's got like a new show. He said X wasn't big enough for him. So he's got his own little platform trying to push more of this. We need to be more like Hungary kind of meme, but it is a very online movement that isn't just him and his testicle tanning fans. It's also Elon Musk, who's now putting Alex Jones back on Twitter. Um, it's, um, you know, they're embracing, what is the guy's name who is accused of rape uh, around the world? And he's a, sort of a, a, a fan uh, or he's basically an, uh, an avatar to the Groypers, Andy, Andrew Tate, um, you know, who's kind of a, a, the incel, I guess, super leader. It's, it's a group of them that are online as well, right? Yeah, it's the American global far right that's been building on the Internet since about 2014, 2015, post what I would say Gamergate, basically online harassment campaigns that target uh, minorities and women specifically um, to try to show off some sort of strongman prowess through um, bullying and intimidation. And that's the entire point of this group. And by the way, I think you did a good job of showing where the power structure is now. The power structure actually is with Elon Musk and with Tucker Carlson and Alex Jones and Matt Gates and Jack Posobiec and uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Those are the people, those are the real uh, power centers of the American Republican Party. And that pushes out, by the way, that's a give and take relationship with people like Viktor Orban, um, who echo those things. And I think the number one thing that I think people want that should know about this, whether, you know, you agree with them about rolling back uh, American trans rights or gay rights, or if you for some reason decide um, that uh, your speech rights are fine to give up, um, democracy in um, right right now. Uh, over there under Viktor Orban's leadership is not really doable. He says he's going to be their leader for the next 10 years plus. That's what he wants to be. He made constitutional amendments to make it harder to vote uh, for opposition parties. He essentially squelched the free press over there, which Tucker Carlson, by the way, in opposite world over there, uh, viewed as more free press. So um, that's the model. The model that you keep hearing in those spaces is we're not a democracy. We're a constitutional republic. And what does that mean? Um, they're going to try once they get into power to never, ever relinquish it. Right. And, and, and the point being, I mean, how much is this? And I don't mean this to be funny. I, I really don't, Steve. How much is this? It's sort of an incel movement, isn't it? You know, I was reading some of the stories about Victor Malay and some of his base. It is sort of these incel young white males who are angry that in, you know, 50, 60 years ago, they're the kind of people who held absolute power in society. And now they feel it's too much the women, it's the gays, it's the trans, it's the blacks, it's the brown people, it's the immigrants. And they essentially want to rebuild that kind of a society and sort of put everyone else uh, on their heels and put everyone else to heel. And, and, and can, it kind of is that, right? It, but, but they're, they're more serious than that in the fact that they are willing to use violence and to deprive people of their rights to vote, uh, to even exist, to speak, and et cetera, in order to make it happen. So it's, um, 
Yes. I mean, throughout history, every time that we take steps towards greater inclusion and greater democracy, there's always pushback. There's always a reaction. There's always an authoritarian reaction. We've seen it in U.S. history and we see it elsewhere. Argentina, like the United States, has become a much more inclusive democracy in uh, in recent years, uh, a dramatic expansion of, of gay rights in the last decade and abortion rights. And like the United States, we're seeing a pushback. But um, it's important to point out Javier Millet is a nut and he's far right. But um, his threat to democracy, I think, is actually far less than than Trump. Donald Trump has been more, much more openly authoritarian, particularly in, in the run up to the 2024 election than any of these guys, than Orban, than Erdogan, than Millet, than Bolsonaro. None of these guys openly promised to lock up their opponents and to go after the media. Millet me, is a clown. He, he, he runs around, he ran around with, a, with a, um, uh, a chainsaw. He never promised to lock up his opponents. He never promised to use the Argentine judicial system against his opponents. He never promised to, to try to shut down the media. Trump has been the most openly authoritarian candidate in a competitive election that I've seen since the end of World War II. And and unfortunately, Ben, the polls a year out mean very little, but they mean, you know, they're a little bit of data that's interesting. Right now, he's beating Joe Biden in the polls. How much of the challenge here is that Biden's base is not as strongly behind him? He's pulling, you know, maybe eight in 10 of the people who voted for him before, whereas Trump is pulling, you know, nine plus, uh, you know, in 10. Uh, and in a three-way race, it's not a whole hell of a lot better. And Biden's base are the more sort of economically stressed people of color, younger people, people who are very mad at him over Gaza, et cetera. He's got problems. How much of this is a challenge that Biden, um, I don't know, in, in some ways can't solve because he's part of it. He's part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely part of it, Joy. And you know, there's two sides to this, right? Running a cult of personality-based campaign is, the, the magic in that is that people do not leave you. People will you know, support you to the very end. That's exactly what Donald Trump is doing and Joe Biden is, is not. You know, he's not messaging around the, you know, only I can fix it uh, kind of stuff that he's that Donald Trump has been saying. Only I will get rid of your enemies. All the sort of authoritarian, uh, frankly, fascist talking points that have been pushed by Donald Trump. That's not what Joe Biden's doing. But also Joe Biden's because of that, you know, his base is fractured. Um, the kids in his base are saying overtly they will not vote for him over Gaza. Um, that is a problem that they need to figure out. This is not. You know, Joe, I, I, you know, you hear from a lot of people. And I think that the uh, de facto position is to browbeat these kids and say they're they're not onto something. They're not seeing what they're seeing with their eyes all over the place and that this mass death is acceptable. And uh, I don't think that's a great strategy that <laughs> uh, they should say the beauty of the Democratic Party or the beauty of democracy or, you know, the beauty of the old Republican Party is you could disagree about these, uh, you know, one to one issues. You could talk about them and you know, actually have these conversations. That's what they should say instead of going for this other playbook that kind of mirrors Trump, that you don't actually know what you're talking about. Talking about and if you don't shut up, uh, you're going to end up with something a lot worse. Yeah, I think that is good advice. We'll see if they take it. Uh, ben Collins, Stephen Levitsky, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, a new filing by special counsel Jack Smith asks the Supreme Court to weigh in on Trump's claim of immunity surrounding the events of January 6th and to do it as soon as possible. The Readout continues after this. 
Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Despite Trump's best efforts to delay his criminal trials until after next year's election, special counsel Jack Smith is not having any of it. Earlier today, Smith asked the U.S. Supreme Court to step in and immediately consider Trump's claim that he has presidential immunity for his attempted coup seeking to overturn the election. Writing, this case presents a fundamental question at the heart of our democracy, whether a former president is absolutely immune from federal prosecution for crimes committed while in office. The move is essentially the special counsel's attempt to bypass Trump's appeal to the D.C. Circuit after Judge Tanya Chutkin rejected this notion of absolute immunity. And Smith is urging the Supreme Court to move quickly so that the trial, currently scheduled for March, can move forward as planned. It all comes as over the weekend, another filing from Smith's office lays out new details about his team's extensive probe into Trump's election lies, specifically the unfounded claim that foreign governments rigged U.S. voting machines. Joining me now is Tim Hafey, criminal defense attorney and former lead investigator for the January 6th Select Committee, and Katie Fang, trial attorney and host of The Katie Fang Show on MSNBC. Katie, let me start with you. Um, how quickly could, in theory, the Supreme Court move on this? Well, I mean, consider the following. The Supreme Court has basically said, I am allowing the expediting of this motion. And we just got this today. I mean, this motion to expedite, I'm looking at it right now. Joy was filed. Motion to expedite briefing on the petition. The order was entered. Donald Trump has to file a response to that petition on or before 4 p.m. on Wednesday, December 20th. And just in today as well, that appellate court appeal in the regular course, Joy, that normally would happen if you didn't skip the appellate court and you went straight to the Supreme Court, that order just got entered right now telling Donald Trump to respond to Jack Smith's motion to expedite by Wednesday of this week. So we're probably going to get this very quickly done. How quickly? Well, if you look at the United States versus Nixon case that is cited to by special counsel Jack Smith. It was done within just a few months. And it's almost, if there was ever anything that was of the utmost paramount importance, Joy, is to have these questions answered. In fact, Special Counsel Jack Smith says, the United States recognizes that this is an extraordinary request 
This is an extraordinary case. The future of democracy hangs in the balance. The Supreme Court understands that perhaps this needs to be addressed as soon as possible so that this issue can be resolved as quickly as possible. And Tim, you know, you were an investigator uh, on the January 6th uh, for the January 6th uh, Select Committee. Did you, um, from your investigation, notice any um, normal presidential activities Donald Trump was was doing when he was watching uh, the insurrection unfold on TV, for instance, or calling his vice president the P word? No, Joy, absolutely not. And look, we faced a lot of the same objections from witnesses uh, during our process, witnesses would say, look, we don't have to come in because we are protected by executive privilege. Everything that we did, all communications with the president, were pursuant to our official function. Uh, our response, the committee's response was always, this is outside of your official function. It has to do with campaign-related activity or straight-up conspiracy to obstruct the official proceeding, none of which uh, it falls within the definition of official business. It's the very same argument that's before the court. Donald Trump wants to say, look, I was acting as president. Jack Smith says, no, you are acting outside of the lawful, permissible bounds of official action in an unlawful way. That, that's a question teed up for the Supreme Court. Judge Chutkin issued a very detailed, very well-reasoned ruling. I think President Trump loses. The bigger question is when and by which court these issues yeah. are teed up. And did you see any evidence that a foreign government uh, interfered with the voting machines and flipped votes from Biden to Trump? I mean, from Trump to Biden? No, absolutely not. Jack Smith has followed this lead as well. We talked to national security officials who looked into allegations of foreign interference with voting machines, found no such evidence. Jack Smith has even gone further, Joy, and actually spoken to some additional members of the Trump administration who themselves were able to rebut the notion uh, of any foreign interference. Jack Smith wants to show that because President Trump's repeated allegations of voter fraud, despite the fact that he was told repeatedly, are evidence of his, of his deception and his specific intent to disrupt the joint session. Yeah. Uh, Katie, let me go to you on this. The special counsel has, in, in their filing says they're going to call three location data cell expert witnesses to testify at the D.C. trial. And, and the bottom line being that they reviewed the phones that were be, that were operating inside the White House and the phones being used by the defendant, meaning Donald Trump and another person called Individual One, and specifically identified the periods of time when the defendant's phone was unlocked and the Twitter application was open on January 6th, the Twitter application. What do you think is the significance of that? I mean, consider the following, like you, it, it just goes to show how much has been going on behind the scenes about which we have no idea. And that is the biggest underestimating that could possibly be done to the detriment of somebody like Donald Trump. There has been this level of investigation that's been conducted, wherein they've gone so far in a granular way to find evidence that shows when an app has been opened, the apps that have been used, the timing of such. And remember, we were always looking to figure out, was there communications going on? What was going on when this is happening? There's different ways of people to be able to communicate with each other. And I just think it just goes to show, to Tim's point, Everything has been chased down. Any available defense that could be you know, raised by Donald Trump, we're going to see that Jack Smith has anticipated those defenses and he's prepared for them. And I think the, it kind of militates toward the idea 
Jack Smith's ready to go to trial. He's ready to go to trial in March. Why delay this? Why push this down even farther? He's prepared to yeah. present his case in chief. And with that evidence in hand, he's showing I'm complying with all the deadlines. I'm moving forward. Let's get this ball rolling. Really quickly, well, I'll just stay with you for just a moment, Katie. The, the opening statements began today in the trial, the defamation trial against Rudy Giuliani. I want to read a quote here. Callers, um, after he she was called out by uh, Donald Trump and Lou Giuliani, callers told Ruby Freeman and Wandrea Arche, Shea Moss, that they were traitors, that they deserved to be hanged from trees and hanged at the United States Capitol, close enough to the public for people to hear their necks snap, said attorney Vaughn DuBose. Um, Giuliani's uh, retort here, his lawyers are telling jurors that the millions of dollars in damages should um, really should fit the crime. What the plaintiff's counsel are asking for here is the signal equivalent of the death penalty, what they're asking for the end of Mr. Giuliani. But what do you make of that evidence from Mr. DuBose? Um, I have no sympathy for Rudy Giuliani. If it's the death penalty for him in that regard financially, oh, well. That's my answer. If you are getting evidence, remember, the whole liability phase of this has been determined. Really, Giuliani's liability for the defamation and the intentional infliction of emotional distress, it's been done. This is just the damages phase. And the important part of what's being asked for by the plaintiffs, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, Joy, is not the the make me whole damages. It's the punitive damages. It's send the message yeah. damages. It's making sure somebody like Rudy Giuliani is not inspiring somebody else to do it, because if they do, they, too, will be looking at a financial death penalty. Uh, thank you so much to Tim Hafey and Katie Fang. Thank you both. Coming up, I will ask Mark Regev, senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, about his country's controversial conduct in its war on Hamas in Gaza. Be right back. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. After more than two months of Israeli attacks, health officials say the death toll in Gaza has now surpassed 18,000 people. Thousands more buried under the rubble and presumed dead. The, Israel, the Israeli Defense Forces estimate that 1,200 people were killed in the October 7 Hamas attack, with around 140 people still held captive in Gaza. Joining me now is Mark Regev, senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He was previously Israel's ambassador to the United Kingdom. Uh, ambassador Regev, thank you for being here. Uh, it has been a long time. Uh, so thank you for your time this evening for you. Um, let's start with this, what I just began with. 18,000 dead so far in Gaza, tens of thousands injured. Um, the U.S. media has estimated that 2,000-pound bombs are being dropped, some 22,000 of them in just over six weeks. 
How has causing that much death and destruction, 80% of those dead estimated to be women and children, how does that achieve the goal of eradicating Hamas? So, Joy, first of all, I want to thank you for allowing me to come on uh, 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 the readout. It is appreciated. I know you've been a critic of Israeli behavior, and I appreciate the opportunity to, 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 to make my case, and, and that is very much appreciated. Our, our goal in this operation is, of course, not to target Gaza civilians. Our, our goal is to target the Hamas military machine. Uh, we have to uh, eliminate that machine because of the threat it poses to the civilian population of Israel. Israeli people simply refuse to live any longer next to this terror enclave in constant fear that terrorists will cross the border in the middle of the night and, and murder their children. That's the bottom line. We have to end Hamas's rule of Gaza. And may I ask how, I'll just re-ask again, how does killing 18,000, 80 percent of whom are women and children, about half of whom really are children, how does that achieve the goal of eliminating Hamas's military infrastructure? Joy, can I, can I urge you please to be a, a little bit circumspect, circumspect of those numbers? They are put out by the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health in Gaza. And therefore, you have to presume that Hamas has reasons for playing with the numbers. You know that they were very cruel. They, they have no qualms whatsoever about killing people, innocent civilians. We saw that on October 7th. And so you can presume also they have few qualms about killing the truth. So are you, are you saying that you do not agree with the United Nations agreeing with those numbers? Um, most human rights groups agree with those numbers. You're saying you're casting doubt on that 18,000 number? What I'm saying is we have to be very careful with numbers that are put out by Hamas. Uh, they would have you believe that they're all innocent civilians. While it's clear that Israel has been targeting Hamas uh, uh, operatives, Hamas terrorists, uh, the Hamas infrastructure. Now, I have no doubt uh, that there have been civilians caught up in the crossfire between the Israeli Defense Forces and the Hamas terrorists. Unfortunately, that's a reality of war. We as a democratic country want to keep those numbers as low as possible. But our job is made really difficult by the fact that Hamas has embedded itself under civilian areas, uh, under neighborhoods, under mosques, under hospitals, uh, uh, even under schools, under UN facilities. Hamas, uh, uh, it's not just Israel says so, the United States has said so, the European Union, others. Hamas has adopted a strategy of using Gazan civilians as a human shield for its terror machine. Let me ask you this question. If you were to discover, the Israeli, um, uh, you know, military were to discover that Yahya Sinwar, who is the Hamas militant who planned the 10-7 attacks, was actually hiding in Israeli territory, hiding in, hospital, in a hospital there with his militants, with his men, would Israel drop 2,000-pound bombs on that hospital? No, we'd probably, if it was inside Israel and we had control of the ground, we'd, we'd send in our special forces, as we have in the past when you've got sort of terrorist situations, and we would eliminate him. And we've now. And you would not do that in Gaza? We have, no, we have. We're, we have sent ground forces into Gaza. We, we're losing soldiers in very difficult firefights between us and the Hamas terrorists. We will Let reach me... Sinwar. It's only a matter of time. Let me show you a piece of video um, and take a look at it. This is a group of Palestinian men who were marched out of 
per U.S. media, including CNN, U.N. facilities placed on the ground in their underwear and displayed in this way. Who took these pictures, sir? And is this not a violation of the Geneva Conventions to display these men in this way? So, so can I say that the reason they've been asked to strip, uh, except for their underwear, is because uh, Hamas, of course, has been one of the pioneers of the use of uh, explosive vests. And uh, we've had too much experience with people uh, from Hamas blowing themselves up and in the process killing uh, Israelis around them. And that we would ask people who have surrendered to strip off temporarily That is a a necessity of of difficult combat with a a, a terrorist group that has used this tactic repeatedly in the past. Too many Israelis have died from Hamas terrorists who've exploded themselves with with explosive vests. I will note that Haaretz, an Israeli newspaper, has noted that one in 10, perhaps, have been linked in some way to Hamas. Nine in 10 were doctors. Um, one of them is the brother of Hani Almadun, who works for the United Nations. I want to quickly play you a piece of video. Um, this is can the I, can cousin. I that, please? Um, sure. I just wanted to say that these were men who were uh, uh, apprehended, taken prisoner in an area of combat. They're men of military age. Uh, it was a combat zone where there was heavy fighting. As a result, we were right to 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 interrogate them all. We're ultimately we're who, looking for those but who responsible. Took those pictures, sir, because I, I don't deny the right of the military to interrogate people that it's holding. But the Geneva Conventions are quite clear in saying that displaying people in a way that degrades their human dignity is a violation of the Geneva Conventions. So who took those pictures and, we, and who displayed them? Who distributed we're making, them? We're, 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 we're taking steps to make sure that doesn't happen again. Uh, the stripping but of who them was took the pictures in the first place? Underwear. No, we're getting trying to uh, to get to the bottom of that. It's not clear to me, uh, and it's clear that it shouldn't have happened. Let me play for you um, the relative of one of the people who was kidnapped on ten seven. This is the cousin of one of those people. Take a listen. We are operating under the assumption that we are running out of time. You've just covered the the renewed assault on southern Gaza. This is probably where my cousin is. This is where his phone was traced to. We know that the Israeli airstrikes are hurting the hostages. And now it's even more dense. it's, It's impossible. What is your answer to this young man, uh, particularly given that Israeli officials have talked about doing things like filling the tunnels with seawater? So his family is being held hostage by Hamas in Gaza, and one can only feel for him and and try to support him because Hamas can do the, you know, they're they're guilty of the most heinous violence, uh, most atrocious the behavior but, sir, it is, it is Israel that is bombing the place where his family is. That is what I was asking you, because that is what he is asking. He's saying no, that his cousin say, is no, being held I'm where Israel is, is bombing. All I'm saying is we have to feel for this person and all the, all the relatives who've got loved ones being held hostage by Hamas in Gaza. We can only feel and try to understand the pain they're going through. But as to Israel's policy, as you know, a week ago, with the help of President Biden, we had a humanitarian pause for hostages to be released. And the only reason Hamas agreed to that pause 
is because they were under incredible military pressure. They didn't suddenly release hostages because they became may, humanitarian. May I ask you very quickly, we're, we're very much out of time, sir. My, my, they're in my ears out of time. During the week-long pause, more than 100 civilian hostages were released, 81 Correct. Israelis, 23 Thai nationals, and one Filipino. How many have been released while Israel has been bombing? Resuming bombing. No, I think it's the opposite, though. I, I think the, the opposite. But none is true. have been they released. released. They were released no, during no. the pause. But they, the pause was agreed to because Hamas was desperate for a ceasefire, and it's possible that as we keep the military pressure How on many? Hamas today, that will that will expedite a future release of hostages. Because Hamas, I started to say, you didn't let me finish the sentence. Hamas only releases hostages. They're not humanitarians. They only, as President Biden said, they respond to pressure. And the military pressure on Hamas that we're, we're, we're giving today, that can lead to the release of hostages tomorrow. There's no other way to, to work with these people. As President Biden said, they understand pressure. Let, let me ask you one final question, and then I really do have to go. There have been some statements by leaders um, in Israel, including your prime minister, uh, referring to things like the Amalek, which in the Bible means killing the women, the children and the oxen, referring the uh, deputy mayor of Jerusalem, saying that Palestinians should be buried like ants buried alive, talking about uh, using nuclear weapons in Gaza, flattening it, um, saying turning it into a parking lot, saying this will be a new Nakba. Those kind of statements by leaders in Israel, how should the world interpret them? So we will defeat Hamas. We have to dismantle its military machine and we have to remove it from power in Gaza. That's that's for the elementary safety of Israelis. But in achieving so that, that goal, it's not it, in achieving that goal, it's not just good for Israel because we'll be safer and more secure. Our people won't have to live in fear of Hamas coming so across, as I said before. But it's also but good you for stand, the people of Gaza. It's good for the people of Gaza. You stand by those statements? Because, no, the I'm people of Gaza are being referred to as ants? Mm. No, it's good for the people of Gaza too, because Hamas has been ruling the Gaza Strip for 16 years. And what is their record of government? Just poverty, misery, bloodshed, and pot. Uh, they've been terrible for the people of Gaza. Both sides of the frontier, Israelis and Palestinians, will be better off We're, without Hamas. We are out of time. Uh, I'm not sure the people of Gaza would stand by those statements about themselves, uh, but I'm going to leave it Joy, there. They're increasingly coming out against Hamas. There's all this pent up anger that we're seeing now because they hold Hamas accountable. I don't say they like us, Joy. I'm under no uh, uh, illusions. There's a historical animosity that I understand. But they are furious at Hamas for starting this war and for torpedoing the ceasefire and for bringing this destruction upon their society. All right. Well, we will have to leave it there. Please come back. Former Ambassador Mark Regev. Thank you. Still ahead, new developments in the case of a Texas woman forced to ask a judge for the right to carry out a necessary medical procedure, including a look at why the odds were stacked against her from the start on that state's highly conservative Supreme Court. We'll be right back. Late tonight in a stunning but not shocking move, the Texas Supreme Court ruled against 31-year-old Kate Cox, who sued to get an emergency abortion because her fetus had developed a lethal condition and her health was at risk. In their ruling tonight, the court said that difficulties in pregnancy, even serious ones, do not pose the heightened risk to the mother that the state's exceptions for a mother whose life is in danger encompasses, going against what Cox's doctor had recommended. Due to her underlying health conditions, every day Cox remained pregnant, endangered her health and her ability to have another child, which she has said she wants. 
It's worth noting just who made that private health decision for her. The court is made up entirely of Republicans, including John Devine, who centered his 2012 election on his anti-abortion ideology, including boasting about getting arrested dozens of times for protesting abortion clinics. One of his campaign ads spoke about the decision he and his wife made to continue a high-risk pregnancy that doctors said was likely to end in the deaths of both mother and child. According to the Texas Tribune, his wife Nubia survived the birth, but their daughter only lived for an hour. That was Devine and his wife's private decision to go forward with that pregnancy. And now Kate Cox's health is at risk because people like Devine are trying to make that decision for her. Cox's lawyers say she has left the state to get that abortion. Joining me now is Melissa Murray, professor of law at New York University and an MSNBC legal analyst. You know, even with Roe gone, Melissa, it is hard, I think, for me and for a lot of women to just get it in our heads and exp- that, that women in the year of our Lord, 2023, have to go to a court, then get overruled by the United States Supreme Court on our personal health care, even at risk of our lives. But just as a legal matter, how can it be that exceptions for supposedly the life of the mother do not cover a case in which a mother could die from sepsis from having dead fetal tissue inside of her. Well, Joy, this is all down to the chaotic and confused environment that's been left in the wake of Roe in many states. Um, It is true that many of the most draconian abortion bans have provisions for exceptions in cases where a pregnancy would threaten the health of the woman or would result in a non-viable fetus. But there's a lot of gray area as to whether or not doctors can actually perform abortions in the judgment, their medical judgment, without risking legal or criminal liability. And so this is one of those situations in Texas. Um, This woman's doctor believes that she needs an abortion in order to preserve her future fertility and in order to preserve her life. But the doctor did not feel that the landscape was clear enough that she could order and perform that abortion without risking legal liability for doing so. And recall, Texas has not only a criminal abortion ban in place, there's also SB8, which is the bounty hunter law that allows any private individual to file suit against anyone helping a pregnant person to get an abortion. That includes the physician. So physicians are really in a difficult position here. They can perform these abortions and be subject to criminal and civil liability. Anytime you are the subject of a civil lawsuit. You have to report that for purposes of licensing. So a lot of physicians are just like, it's just not worth it. I'm not going to do it. And that is exactly the kind of landscape that Texas wants, where not only is it prohibited, but even the exceptions are difficult to get. Well, when we uh, talk to doctors down there, they've said, well, the result is going to be a lot of physicians are going to leave the state because why would you want to practice in a state that essentially is the handmaid's tale? You know, the thing that's so infuriating about this is that the decision on whether a woman can get this exception is really in some ways down to whether the decision maker is a woman or a man um, in the case of the judge who said, yes, she should be able to have this abortion, this female judge and obviously her doctor or this zealot man who on the Supreme who sits on the Supreme Court, despite himself having protested and violated the law and gotten arrested 37 times trying to obstruct women from getting abortions. I don't understand how she doesn't have a legal claim against this judge, for instance. He's clearly biased by his own ideology. I mean, this is the tribunal that she has. This is the Texas Supreme Court. Um, This is an individual who is an elected individual in Texas. Um, Many of the judges on the Texas Supreme Court will be up for re-election in the upcoming election cycle. And so, you know, Texas women, if, if this matters to you, here's an opportunity to make your voices heard. But 
that kind of disparity is one that we see at all levels of government. Um, in Congress, in state legislatures, we have men, often of geriatric age, making decisions about reproductive health for women. And again, there isn't a lot of equity in terms or parity in terms of representation in these legislative bodies. Um, if there are women in the bodies and women are woefully underrepresented in most legislative bodies, they're not necessarily women of reproductive age. Like the people making these decisions are not the people who have to face these really difficult choices. Yeah. In Ohio, there's a case of a young black woman who's in her early 30s who miscarried into a toilet and is now literally facing potentially two years in prison because this it was a stillbirth. And the medical examiner has confirmed that this uh, fetus was dead when it came out of her. How can it be again, year of our Lord 2023, that women are now facing prison for having a stillbirth and not doing what? taking the baby out, dragging it out of the toilet and having a burial? What is it that these men want women to do other than maybe die in childbirth? I'm really glad that you're covering that case because it hasn't gotten the kind of attention that Kate Cox's case has received. But this is the landscape that many, including myself, predicted in the wake of Dobbs and the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Um, in a world where abortion is criminally prohibited or legally legally prohibited, every kind of episode like this, every miscarriage carries the threat that maybe some don't view it as a miscarriage. Maybe some view it as a purposeful way of terminating a pregnancy. Again, it's very hard to tell in a lot of these cases. This was a woman who miscarried at relatively early in her pregnancy. And there's just questions. And it really depends on who the medical examiner is, like whether or not these individuals believe her testimony. And again, there are all kinds of things that sort of factor into the credibility of a woman making that kind of environment at, during these kinds of questions. So again, lots of things are going on. And this is, becomes a kind of place where the state has incredible oversight over the most private decisions and some of the most private trauma that women can go through. A miscarriage is incredibly traumatic for anyone. And to then face the prospect of criminal liability at the end of it can be doubly traumatic. And uh, I will note for uh, those uh, in the audience who are keeping score, the goal among Republicans, including Lindsey Graham and Donald Trump and all of them, including uh, your savior here, the South Carolina former governor, is to take this policy national so that you couldn't leave your state. There'd be nowhere to run because this would be the national policy. Give birth even to dead tissue or die. And those are your choices. Vote accordingly. Melissa Murray, thank you so much for being here. We'll be right back. And that's tonight's readout. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.